It was early in the morning that the skipper of the ship noticed something that did not belong. A strange bundle bobbing in the water. One moment there, the next gone. Only for it to return to the surface just moments later. The skipper, Pullman, a man whom had worked the waterways of the capital since a young boy, had moored his boat the night previous on the banks of the Landwehr Canal. His trade an ancient one now in the heart of a metropolis. Moored to the Schöneberger Ufer, the Potsdamer Brücke spanned the waterway behind his ship. The Potsdamer Brücke laced with tramlines necessary to carry the weight of the modern world, the rich and the poor, the revelers and the regal. Or, at least, it had been before the nation's surrender in the war the year prior. Now it seemed the cities across the nation were not of modernization, but rather of bickering. Not that it was of a great concern to him. He would still meander the canals and the rivers despite which political party called themselves the governors or which flag flew over the buildings of Berlin. So he stood upon the top deck of his boat and watched the peaceful serenity of this strange package bobbing along the opposite side of the water of the Landwehr Canal. A package caught in the flow of the water, no control on its destiny. He watched it as it danced to and fro in the water and in and out of the shadows cast from the ornate buildings that surround. But it was his own curiosity that would bring the package to the conclusion of this stage of its narrative. Casting his boat hook out far into the water with an outstretched arm, he caught the outer material which he quickly realized was a fabric. Pulling it closer with the hook, the water in its resistance formed a wake, and from this wake the fabric pulled apart so far as for the skipper Pullman to see a glimpse of what was inside. The shock caused him to reel, but a duty drove him on, for a leg now hung, swollen, in the water. Pulling the bundle still with hook, the skipper Pullman jumped from boat to shore, walking slowly as to keep the bundle near. Once at the steps connecting the street with water, where Gauss, von Helmholtz, Röntgen and Siemen sat stoically in bronze, the skipper Pullman heaved. From the bridge above, the prying eyes of the morning pedestrians watched the skipper fight with the bundle that the water seemed resistance to let go, until at last a body was revealed. Now the skipper Pullman saw the body of a stout and stocky man whose full head of blonde hair was matted smooth by the water. His lip was adorned with an English trimmed moustache and his eyes furrowed by strong eyebrows. He, the corpse, was still fully dressed. He wore a green jacket, dark blue leggings, maco vest and a colourful shirt adorned with a soft linen collar and dark blue tie. The skipper Pullman guessed the man was not much older than 30, yet here he was, pulled from the water, wrapped in a military or a horse's grey blanket, dead. One of the morning pedestrians stopped by curiosity an actor to call the police and curtly the 33rd Precinct's criminal investigation department was alerted. Soon the waves of response rippled within the Berlin Police Presidium. Criminal Commissar Dr. Reimann was first on the scene, but to the skipper he understood he may have made a discovery of some significance when the soft-fronted and intellectual deputy of the Maud Commission, Regierungsrat Dr. Bernhard Weiss, appeared. Dr. Reimann and Dr. Weiss began to inspect the body further. Inspecting the corpse revealed a cord tied between the legs and then another was discovered when an attempt was made to remove the blanket in which it was once wrapped. 
The second cord to the shock of those present was wrapped around the neck of the deceased and subsequently attached to the blanket itself. It was within the pocket of the green blazer, hidden deep within, that the most important discovery was made. The deceased carried no identity card, but he did carry a ticket receipt. Wet and frail, Weiss and Reimann carefully examined the paper upon the stone-flagged floor. A receipt for left luggage at the Potsdamer Bahnhof. A uniformed officer was dispatched with a note of the receipt's number to take possession of the items that were not to be collected by the man now deceased. Laid out on the table before them now were the possessions of the deceased. For Weiss and Reimann, it was a stroke of luck. If it were not for the belongings left in the station now delivered before them, the identity of the man might have remained a mystery. Now the identity document that had been stored within the left luggage revealed the deceased to be one 28-year-old Carl Blau, an agricultural inspector. But the body, although disfigured, was known to them. Even the face of the man when alive might not be recognisable to them in the street, but the name Carl Blau was known, for Carl Blau was one of their own, a police spy placed, they knew, within communist circles. However, the subsequent investigation will reveal that not all was as it seemed, for in a world of fractured politics, it was impossible to know who to trust. This is the short story into the life, death, and a subsequent investigation into the murder of Carl Blau. Achtung, Achtung. Here is the Sendestelle Berlin im Voxhaus. Meine Damen und Herren. Welcome to the Achtung History Podcast, written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. This week, Death in the Landwehr. Little is known of the early life, if anything at all, of Karl Blau. Traces on his name run cold with great speed. A search online will result with articles about the American indie rock musician with the same name. A deeper dive discovers the derivatives for chromatography. It is the newspapers that reveal the details that we do know. But these small details in themselves reveal a much larger picture of a Germany in tatters. The story, as can be discovered of Karl Blau, begins after the war when Blau is a man of 27 years of age. At this age, it is more than likely that Blau had served in the war that had brought the realm of Kaisers to a close. When the premature announcement of the Kaiser's abdication on the 9th of November 1918, Germany's political strifes began in earnest. The declaration of the German Republic by Philipp Scheidemann on this date in response to Prince Maximilian von Baden's announcement of the Kaiser's abdication was intended to create a continuation of governance. But a counter-declaration by Karl Liebknecht of a free socialist republic was to foreshadow the years that were to follow. A period of duality of state and polarization of politics appeared by the government part briefly before in the Reichstag miniseries as well as in the shadow of the swastika May Day and the quashing of the unions. It was within this period that many became ardent supporters of particular causes, many advancing with proverbial swords only for them to fall upon their own swords themselves. For Karl Blau, it is unclear for reasons that will be revealed later where he fell within this political spectrum. 
However, he did find himself acting as a member of the right-wing extremist organization known as the Anti-Bolshevistische Liga, or Anti-Bolshevist League, that was spurned on by fear of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia that had deposed the Tsar. The Anti-Bolshevik League had been founded by Eduard Stadler, a German former prisoner of war at the hands of the Russians. In his period as a prisoner, beginning in 1916, Stadler had learned the Russian language, but was released from captivity with the Brest-Litovsk Treaty that took Russia and her new rulers out of the First World War. In remaining in Russia, in Moscow, Stadler reported to the German embassy as a connoisseur on Russian conditions. His work in Moscow brought him into a circle that was quite common, a circle that opposed the Bolshevik rulers and wished to support the opposing white Russian forces. Reporting on the growing Russian civil war, Stadler operated as a press attaché before, finally, returning to Berlin in August. With his gusto combined with his hatred for the Bolsheviks, Stadler was used as a speaker for the war press office. His speeches brought the danger of Bolshevism to the masses. In the Berlin Sports Palace, as well as the Philharmonic Hall, Stadler spoke of the threat that he believed that Bolshevism was not only to Germany, but to the world. In October 1918, Stadler found the Solidarity Circle at Potsdamer Strasse 121L. Around him in this circle, other ideologues joined. Yet many within wanted to build an elitist club, where Stadler wanted to build a mass anti-Bolshevik movement. A split formed, and in December, the League was founded. With backing from major industrialists who feared the Bolsheviks and the takeover of the means of production by the workers, the anti-Bolshevik League grew with immense speed. Money from the Protestant theologian Friedrich Naumann to the tune of 3,000 marks and 5,000 more from members of the Deutsche Bank, Paul Makowitz, enabled a rapid expansion. Soon the anti-Bolshevik League was established in Breslau, Bremen, Dusseldorf, Essen, Halle, Hamburg, Königsberg and Leipzig. And it was capturing young men across the nation, men like Karl Blau. Pamphlets were distributed across the nation in the first few days of the Anti-Bolshevik League and headlines read Liebknecht, the agent of Russia. Followers of Liebknecht, for whom are you fighting? Are you fighting for Liebknecht's ideal or do you already realise for whom you are giving your lives? Do you know why Radek is still in Berlin? Do you know that why many Russian Soviet representatives are in Berlin? So they, they can misuse Germany as a war headquarters for Russian Bolshevik ideas and ideals penned by Stadler's own hand. Stadler was peddling fear-mongering to the German masses, and he was becoming a danger. Therefore, Karl Blau was sent to work. Working as an informant, he was sent to infiltrate the anti-Bolshevik League in Berlin and report back to the police on its workings and also on Stadler's political goals and ideologies. It appeared that there was a parallel thinking between Stadler in Berlin and a very small group in Bavaria that was operating under the arm of Anton Drexler, a parallel line in which they were propagating an ideology that was contrary to the class struggle socialism of Marxism of the communists, like Karl Liebknecht, and one that was rather leading toward a Christo-Germanic national socialism. Stadler's group continued to grow, and with it, Blau's monitoring. 
In renouncing anti-Semitism, Stadler was able to appeal to a wider mass, as well as becoming politically acceptable for both politicians and industrialists. A meeting at the Aero Club in Berlin saw heads or representatives of some of the largest industries present in Berlin, including Siemens, Borzig, AEG and Disconto, in an event made possible by Paul Mankiewicz of the Deutsche Bank, as well as politicians such as Hugo Stinners. Supposedly by the end of the meeting, Stadler had 500 million Reichsmarks pledged to his case, although this amount is widely up for speculation. This meeting took place on the 10th of January 1919. As the meeting was taking place, Berlin was gripped by the January Uprising, an uprising that more commonly has the name the Spartacus Uprising. The uprising was one of the communists' versus the social democratic government of Germany. In a feeble attempt by the communists to seize power and install a council republic like that of Russia. An uprising that appeared to prove Stadler's propaganda that his anti-Bolshevik league had been spreading. The uprising led by Liebknecht and Luxembourg was quashed by the Freikorps, the irregular German army forces, and came to an end on the 12th of January. Liebknecht and Luxembourg ultimately were murdered, something that Stadler later would take credit for in convincing Valdemar Prabst of the Guard Cavalry Division to commit the murders of these revolutionary leaders. But the successful subjugation of the communists also spelt the end of Stadler's anti-Bolshevik party. The industrialists realised that there was to be no communist council and thus withdrew their funding and discarded the mouthpiece of anti-Bolshevik propaganda that Stadler was. By February, the Anti-Bolshevik League was renamed by Stadler in an attempt for continuation to the League for the Protection of German Culture. In this respect, Stadler was taking a more moderate course, one that was no longer entirely founded on fear-mongering, but was beginning to align itself more with social democracy. For the police and their informant Karl Blau, there was therefore little interest in the continuation of the observation of this league. However, Blau must have proved successful, for with the arrival of the spring, he was quickly dispatched to another hotbed of communist activity, Munich. Munich, like Berlin, was in the grips of its own battle with communism, although in this instance it was proving more successful than that in Berlin in some regards. Bavaria proclaimed a people state after the fleeing of the Bavarian monarch Ludwig III on the 7th of November 1918. Under Kurt Eisner, there was to be a communist state, but a communist state that maintained property rights. However, Eisner's clear defeat, receiving only 2.3% in the election of January 1919, did not bode well for this people's state. Nor did, in fact, Eisner's subsequent assassination the following month whilst on his way to Parliament to announce his resignation. Eisner was assassinated by the nationalist Anton von Padua Alfred Emil Hubert Georg Graf von Arco auf Valle. But blame ultimately, falsely, fell upon Erhard Auer, the leader of the Social Democrats. Therefore, Alois Lindner, a supporter of Eisner, took it upon himself to in turn assassinate Auer. However, despite firing two shots, Lindner failed to kill Auer. Other Eisner's supporters who were present opened fire on the saloon in which members of the government were gathered, causing a breakdown in the government itself. Even more chaos was to follow.
Johannes Hoffmann attempted to form a parliamentary coalition government, but had to flee to Bamberg when, spurred on by a recent left-wing revolution in Hungary, Eisner's supporters felt the wind of change was with them. Ernst Toller was declared chief of state by the revolutionaries and Toller called upon the Bavarian Red Army to protect the new state, an army that did not exist. Yet surprisingly, stability did not come. It didn't come either when the foreign affairs deputy, one Dr. Lipp, declared war on Switzerland when Switzerland refused to lend the new republic trains. Although, thankfully, nothing was to come of this war. Toller's rule began on the 6th of April, as did the Soviet Republic. But Toller's rule ended just six days later when the Russian-backed Communist Party, along with Russian emigres, seized power with Eugene Levine at their head. Where the Toller government had been farcical, the Levine government was extreme. Cash and property were seized, factories were given to the workers, and Bavaria, for a brief moment, seemed to be the stepping stone of Bolshevism into Western Europe. Shocked by the developments in the South, the governmental regime in the North acted swiftly to infiltrate and counter the insurrection in the South, and Karl Blau was dispatched. Before Blau could arrive, however, the two Bavarian governments, the Free State in Bamberg and the Soviet Republic in Munich, clashed. In the town of Dachau, on the outskirts of Munich, and much more famous for the concentration camp operated there during the National Socialist rule over Germany, armies of the two opposing forces met. 8,000 Bavarians lined up on the side of Hoffmann and the Free State on the 18th of April. But the Soviet Republic, mobilizing an army formed of workers who were now empowered with the industry they once slaved for, were able to field 30,000. In the first battle, Toller and the Soviet Republic, whom was placed now in charge of the workers' forces, were victorious. In response, Hoffmann came to an agreement with Lieutenant General Burghard von Orven and the Freikorps to augment the Free State forces with 20,000 more men. With the professionals of the Freikorps, Hoffmann turned the tide. Dachau fell quickly from the Soviet Republic hands, and Munich in turn was quickly surrounded. Within the city, the panicking Soviet Republic government took drastic measures when they seized the Hotel Führer Zeiten and particularly the Tula Society within. Countess Helle von Verstapp was held hostage, as were six other prominent members of society. But as the Hoffman forces grew closer, the Soviet Republic once again panicked, and despite pleas from Toller, the hostages were executed. When May Day came, the day traditionally belonging to the communists, the Soviet Republic awoke to find the Freikorps breaking through their lines into the city. Employing their military might, the Freikorps advanced with artillery and even air support. The Soviet Republic that had been established on the 6th of April had lasted until the 3rd of May, when Lieutenant General von Orphan seized the city. Quickly, swift justice was handed out to those who had ruled in the Soviet Republic, and between 1,000 and 1,200 communists were executed. But naturally, it was unsure if the threat would be suppressed. Karl Blau arrived in Munich to find the city under the named control of Hoffmann, but it really now was under the rule of von Orphan. 
Suspicion was being thrown around onto everyone and often was to use Blau to once again monitor the communist circles. As Blau was monitoring the numerous different circles, his reports being collected and distributed not only to von Orphan, but also to the military and police as well as the Bavarian Interior Ministry, another parallel was being drawn. Another young man amongst the chaos had camouflaged himself within the Soviet Republic as a liaison between his army battalion and the Soviet propaganda office, but was now part of the three-man committee investigating those soldiers who were sympathetic towards the Soviet rule. This young man would eventually, like Blau, be sent to monitor political circles and would eventually attend a meeting that would change history. His name, Adolf Hitler. Blau, though, continued his reporting only for a short while. However, Blau's movements between multiple circles had begun to raise suspicions. Eyes were beginning to recognize him and mouths questioned his true beliefs. It is uncertain what unfolded next. Perhaps it was a cover-up, an attempt to reassure the communists of Blau's allegiance, or an attempt not to burn a spy, but on the 2nd of July 1919, Blau was arrested. Accused of passing documents from the hands of the government and from von Orphan into the communist circles in which he operated, Brau was promptly thrown into prison without trial, but released from custody on the 22nd of July on the condition he was to permanently leave Bavaria. Blau and a member of the Communist Independent Social Democratic Party, not to be confused with the Social Democratic Party, Franz Herm, along with two other men, were also expelled. Herm was one of those amongst the communists who had held suspicion over Blau's head and Blau's possible murder was being touted around. However, Blau and his fellow exiles from Bavaria arrived safely shortly thereafter in Berlin. On the evening of the 1st of August, Blau and Herm arranged to meet with other communist functionaries. Blau, probably unsuspecting, was walking into a trap. Once inside the meeting, Blau was accused by Herm of being a spy. Blau looked desperately around the room and recognized a face, the face of Franz Stolz. Blau recognized him from the other communist circles in which he operated. Blau asked Stoltz to speak on his behalf to ensure the group that he was no spy, that he had attended many communist meetings and that they were a sign of his dedication to the cause. But Stoltz turned the finger on Blau. Stoltz accused Blau of being a spy to Blau's shock. But what Blau may not have known was that Stoltz was in himself a spy for the police. Amazingly, however, no action against Blau was taken. Then came the following night. On the 2nd of August, Max Fichtmann, an innkeeper in Berlin, as well as Irvin Hopper, a merchant, and his childhood friend, Willy Winkler, a tailor, lured Blau to Winkler's apartment at number 20, Grossbierenstrasse, Berlin. Grossbierenstrasse, a wide street capped to the south by the magnificent Victoria Park and the Kreuzberg Memorial, to the wars of liberation, and the canal and the elevated U-Bahn to the north. At the grand neoclassical building, four stories in height, Blau would step up the two small steps into the narrow entranceway of number 20, walking in 
perhaps, foolishly. He hadn't decided to flee after the accusations the night before, nor, as far as I am aware, returned to his police masters to plead to be sent away. But he, out of his own free will, walked into number 20 Grossbierenstrasse. Entering the apartment, Blau was invited to sit down, then offered a glass of wine, which he accepted. Soon, however, he began to feel sleepy, and quickly his conscience could no longer fight the unnatural sleep, and he slumped over. The men around him, Fichtman, Hopper, and Winkler, went to work. The morphine with which they had laced Blau's wine had proven successful, but Blau was obviously only sleeping. Taking a rope and forming a noose, they placed it over Blau's head and strangled him. Blau, now dead, was placed on a blanket, his legs tied together, and then wrapped fully within the blanket. The apartment had been chosen probably, one, for ease of it belonging to Hopper's friend, but also because of its proximity to the canal. Here, at the canal, the three men then took the body and dropped it into the water, where it disappeared beneath the surface. The next time Carl Blau was seen was five days later on the 7th, when fished from the water by the skipper Pullman. A criminal investigation was launched, with 5,000 marks offered as reward, and quickly the scheme of the communists fell to greed. Fichtman, the innkeeper, was handed in, as was Hopper and Winkler. Fichtman and Hopper were charged with deliberately killing Blau and Winkler, with knowingly assisting a crime, when after a 10-month-long investigation, the crime came to trial in June 1920. Defending the accused were Siegfried Weinberg and Kurt Rosenfeld, as well as Theodor Liebknecht, the brother of the murdered politician and revolutionary Karl Liebknecht. In the lead-up to the trial, there had been much speculation over the death of Blau. Many had come to believe that the police had betrayed Blau because he'd become sympathetic to the communist cause, a somewhat Stockholm-like syndrome. Others believed that the three arrested were just those chosen to take a fall so that the police could preserve their other informants. A wide majority believed the police were killing two birds with one stone, get rid of an unreliable informant, whilst at the same time causing a spectacle and a wave of disdain against the communists. When the trial did open, it did appear somewhat farcical, and here follows the report on the opening day of proceedings. The death of the agriculture inspector Blau from Schlossenburg, which was accompanied by mysterious circumstances, has given rise to a charge of murder which will be heard today in the jury court of the District Court Number 2. The accused are the innkeeper Macht Fichtemann, who was brought back from Brandenburg Prison, the merchant Erwin Hopper, and the journeyman Taylor Willi Winkler, all three still young people aged 21 and 22. We've already reported the facts on which the charge is based. In today's trial, District Court Judge Jule is presiding. The prosecution is represented by Public Prosecutor Dr. Ortmann, the lawyers Fyodor Liebknecht, Dr. Siegfried Weinberg, and Dr. Kurt Rosenfeld will administer the oath. Admission in today's trial is only permitted with special admission cards and is controlled by security police. Several of the 45 invited witnesses are missing, including the ship owner Pullman, who found the body of the murdered Blau. Lawyer Liebknecht explains that he cannot do without this witness. While the witnesses are being called Lawyer Barn, who has been called in by lawyer Liebknecht, appears as defense counsel. Public prosecutor Dr. Orman ordered that another witness, 
be called in place of the ship owner who had not appeared and who had found the body. Prosecutor Dr. Weinberg explained that he could not dispense with four witnesses who had been called but had not appeared. They were all informers and did not present themselves as witnesses in the usual manner. The prosecution witness Schreiber was the most important witness against whom there were strong suspicions that he himself was the perpetrator. The witness Teufel, who also did not appear, is also suspected of being involved in the crime. Stoltz, also an informer, gave the order for Blau to be brought in, and the witness Samson is also an informer. Only the personal questioning of these missing witnesses will give a true picture of the case and cannot be replaced by reading out their statements. Public Prosecutor's Counsel, Dr. Ortmann Schreiber, has not been identified. According to the Munich police, he was deported from Munich to Switzerland, where he is an informer or not is relevant. The court will have to decide whether he is credible. Lawyer Liebknecht. The public has an urgent interest in this murder being completely clarified in its motives and is entirely genesis. We are dealing here with the activities of military and political agents and informers, especially Schreiber, who, like Teufel, are involved in the murder. The police, of course, cannot find the informers because they do not want to find them. Schreiber has been deported to Switzerland. Teufel played a similar role in preliminary trial as Schreiber did here. The investigation lasted 10 months. The preliminary investigation lasted for months, and not once was the defense given the opportunity to see the files. It was only at the end of May that they were given the opportunity to see the files with an explanation period of five days. It has not been possible to work through the files properly, even once. This is a restriction of the defense that must be protested against. For this reason, too, we protest against the trial. Presiding District Court Judge Joel rejects the allegation that the form in which the proceedings have been conducted is in any way washed away from the form in other proceedings, especially the allegations regarding the withholding of the files is not true at all. The files were permanently in the court, and Dr. Weinberg had permanent access to them. The public prosecutor, Dr. Ortman, also opposes Liebknecht's allegations, but the defendants will also have an equally vivid interest in bringing this trial to an end. So it was revealed at the beginning of the trial just how many police informants were active. And it was suspicion that a man by the name of Schreiber was in fact the perpetrator of the crime, a man, Schreiber, who was known to be a police informant himself. Most eyes, the communist eyes, the eyes of the general public, began to look on the police as the organization that committed the murder of Karl Blau. But in the course of the proceedings over the next days, it continued to come to light just how many informants there were within the communist circles. For the communists, the trial helped in exposing them, many of which had to keep moving around to avoid being attacked by communists as their names were made available to the public as part of court proceedings. So with the witnesses not appearing, the police unwilling to be cooperative, as according to Liebknecht, and the only thing that was sure was that Blau was dead. The farcical trial to a quite farcical story came to an end when Fixman was acquitted, Hopper was sentenced to six years, and Willy Winkler himself to three years. Yet the story of Karl Blau gives an insight into the chaos that existed in Germany and the parallel lines that were being drawn. The lines between Drexler, whose meeting in Munich, Hitler would attend and begin the future Führer's political career, and that of Edward Stadler, whom, if it were not for the quick collapse of the communist uprising in the north, might have found his own path to power not that dissimilar to Hitler's that came later. Equally so, how Blau and Hitler's lines were also running parallel in Munich after the Soviet Republic's collapse. But this is one of the wonderful things about the smaller stories. One, you can see 
how history could have been so different if only for a small change. But also, what may appear as a small story can very quickly open up a greater context. For the case of Karl Blau, one of the things, if the police did orchestrate the murder of their own informant, one of the things that they didn't expect was for the court case into that murder to expose so many of their political informants and expose just how deep within the communist circles the police were. Stadler, to end, opened a publishing house in Dusseldorf in 1934 from which his own works were printed. Yet this did not last long. In 1939, the Nazis destroyed his publishing house and he was effectively placed under house arrest by the Gestapo, especially after he offered a thinly veiled defense of the Jewish people and a critique of the anti-Jewish propaganda of the Nazis. Stadler returned to Berlin shortly after this, where he remained in obscurity throughout the war. However, with the defeat of Hitler's Germany and the arrival of the Soviets in Berlin, the NKVD found the notorious anti-Bolshevik Edward Stadler and placed him in the Sachsenhausen Special Camp, the camp that operated from 1945 until 1950 as a concentration camp for German political prisoners. Of the 60,000 that were interned here, 12,000 would die of malnutrition, illness, as well as mental and physical exertion. Stadler was one of these. Thank you for listening to the Arctic History Podcast, written and presented by myself, Simon J. James. This has been Death in the Landwehr. If you enjoyed this Arctic History Podcast, please leave a rating and a review. If you want to further support the Arctic History Podcast, please visit patreon.com forward slash history where support tiers begin from just one euro a month. For further news, follow Arctic History on Twitter at Arctic History. From me, Simon J. James, until next time, goodbye.